You're listening to Storytime for Travellers, where adventurers share their craziest travel moments. Welcome back to the podcast. Now, this episode is actually the last episode of series one. So I have a very special guest on the podcast for you guys. It's my dad, Chris Modell. Now, the reason I wanted to feature my dad on the last episode of this series is because he's kind of the reason that Storytime for Travellers came to be. When I was a child, instead of bedtime stories, I would always beg my dad to tell me these stories of his adventures over and over again. And I really believe that this is the reason that I love traveling so much. My dad first started traveling when he was 21 and got a job as a photographer on cruise ships. He did this around the Caribbean for about seven years until he decided to buy a boat with his friend and set sail on the adventure of a lifetime. Having never sailed before, they embarked on a year-long adventure from Mexico across the Pacific Ocean to New Zealand, stopping off on tiny islands along the way. Once he arrived in New Zealand, he worked as a kayak instructor and met my mum, who was backpacking at the time. Their story's actually pretty romantic. She was meant to fly to the US the next day, but two hours before her flight left, she turned back and decided to stay in New Zealand with the man she had only met one day before. They then continued travelling together before coming back to the UK and have done lots of travel since. My dad has now swapped boats for two wheels and has done lots of motorbike adventures to places like Mexico, Vietnam, Iceland, India and more, writing articles for a magazine called Upshift Online. In our conversation, we chat being invited to a local's feast on a tiny island in the Pacific, motorbiking the most dangerous road in the world in India and having dolphins lead his boat to land on his first Pacific island. And of course, there's loads more. Enjoy. Today on Storytime for Travellers, I'm welcoming my dad to the podcast. So hi, dad. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Evie? I'm good. I'm speaking to you over Skype, which is kind of strange, but great to have you on the podcast. Well, it's really nice to be here. (laughs) So the first story that I want to speak to you about is your sailing adventure. So when you did that trip, you visited lots of small islands, went to places that not many people have been to. So is there an experience that stands out where you feel that you really got to immerse yourself in a local culture? Well, I think um, the whole trip was really immersive, um, sailing across the Pacific. The the people, they call them the friendly islands, and the people really are friendly. One of the uh, greatest islands I went to was a place called Near Tapu Tapu. And, and the reason I went there was purely because of the name, because it has such an amazing name. But when we arrived, we were probably, I think, the sixth boat that had visited that island that year. Um, so as we kind of anchored off the shore, all the kids came down and they were all shouting off the beach, Palangi, Palangi, which which kind of means white man from over the horizon. And all the kids... Um, on the island are under the age uh, of 11 because when they get to 11 then they go to the main school on Tongatapu. So there are about uh, 25 families that live on the island with various numbers of children 
but all very small. Um, and they really took us into their kind of hearts. It's an amazing place. So the day we arrived, we walked probably three miles to go through immigration and customs and, and quarantine. And having walked through the jungle with kids following us all the way, uh, we got to three huts. Uh, I went to the first hut, which was quarantine, and saw the guy and he stamped my passport and said that we were okay. Uh, I went into the next hut and the same guy wearing a different hat came in and stamped my passport for immigration <laughs> and then came into the next hut and then stamped us into the into the country properly. So that did, he, was, did he change hats every time? <laughs> he, he literally changed hats. It was bizarre, but really quite amusing. And then there were all these kids hanging out outside. And then as soon as he done, he, he was sort of done with us. He invited us that evening to come and feast with them. Um, so we got invited to an island feast, uh, which was just a really, it was a big thrill and it was a huge honour. So we kind of marched up to the top of the volcano, which is where they have their their houses. And they're all um, straw huts. They're basically made of four poles with a straw roof um, and then soft sides which roll up. So if hurricanes come through or cyclones come through in that part of the world, they can roll the side of the, the huts up so the wind blows through and doesn't blow the hut over. So they're, they're quite big, open, um, and then reed mats on the floor. And they'd laid out this amazing feast. Um, and bear in mind, there isn't much in the way of food on this island because they're fairly self-sufficient, but they live on a volcano uh, and very little water. There's lots of mangoes, papayas and um, taro root um, and everything's kind of wrapped up in uh, banana skin leaves um, and some fish and a little bit of suckling pig. So they really went to town on this feast. And it was just incredible that people with very little um in the way of kind of what we would consider sort of material wealth had this huge amount of hospitality or hospitality to to treat us this way and it was it was great oh that sounds like such an incredible experience and really definitely immersing yourself in their culture and so amazing that they were that welcoming to you after you've just come off the come off the boat um well yeah. i think i think they were just fascinating because they just don't get to see many people and all the kids were just so excited that we were there and they kind of showed us all around the island and took us to their favourite cliffs and everything else. It was great. How long did you stay on that island? Uh, we were on that island only for a fairly short time. We were there for about four or five days. Um, the, the distance between the islands in the Pacific when you're sailing, uh, some trips are 30 days, some are 10 days. Most islands are about 500 to 1,000 miles in between. So they're at least a five to 10 day sail. Um, so you need to kind of keep moving on, otherwise you're not going to get across before the end of the the kind of calm period, before the cyclones start coming at the end of the season. Yeah, and is that hospitality something that you experienced in lots of the islands that you visited? Oh, I would say in the Pacific, everywhere we visited, they just are genuinely the most friendly people that I've ever come across anywhere when I've been travelling. Um, and the fact that you've kind of arrived by boat, you're not a tourist that's come on a plane. All the islands that we visited, um, you just can't fly to. Um, so they don't get to see many people. And the people they do are sailors. And they've got a huge sailing kind of culture. The Polynesians migrated all over the, the Pacific uh, in sort of boats years ago. And they moved around quite a lot. So they're big seafaring nations. So they've got a lot of respect for sailors, which is really nice. 
Okay, so in terms of all of your trips, is there a time that stands out when things have gone wrong, but it's led to like an interesting experience? Oh, God, there's so many things that have gone wrong. You can't believe it. Uh, when we started, we, we started from kind of zero as far as experience because I was 28. This is going back, you know, years, 25, nearly 30 years now. And um, I hadn't sailed before. So our first trip was from San Diego, leaving the port of San Diego, going down to Cabo San Lucas in Mexico, which is about an 800-mile trip. Um, and we'd never sailed so we left San Diego, ran aground. Um, we had a trolling generator which charged the batteries, and uh, Julian, my sailing buddy, forgot to tie that on properly, so that got lost overboard. We were in a, a small storm, which we thought was a big storm, so we started sailing under bare poles because we thought that was the right thing to do, and the boat got thrown all over the place. And then eventually, you know, eight days later, when we arrived in Mexico, I then kind of picked on people, other sailors, and asked them to help me and teach me how to sail. And constantly throughout the trip, every time something went wrong, I would then go and find someone and say, what do I do in this situation? And someone with more experience would help me out. And other sailors, it's a, it's a great level of sailing because everybody helps each other. Um, so without a doubt, anytime you've got a problem, you've got a problem with your engine, you've got a problem with not understanding how something works, someone will help you. Yeah, really and that's the best way to learn, isn't it? So what about in terms of um, motorbike trips? Anything that's been a bit scary or any close calls or anything gone wrong well on motorbike trips? Yeah, well, uh, blimey, motorbiking is, uh, is kind of a passion. And again, it's one of those things where you really don't want anything to go wrong because the consequences are quite serious on a motorbike. But just recently, uh, I did a trip to... Uh, Kashmir in India. We were riding from Srinagar down to New Delhi. Um, and the purpose of the trip was for an article I was doing for a magazine. And we were going to ride the Killer to Kishwar Road, which is supposed to be the most dangerous road in the world. So we, it was kind of a big photo opportunity. And the whole story was about riding along the side of this cliff with vertical drop offs. And um, I suffer badly with vertigo. So I was a little bit concerned that. <laughs> It was going to be tricky for <laughs> Yeah, I for can't me. believe you did that. <laughs> no, I can't believe I did that either. But um, I kind of fessed up before we went and said, listen, guys, I do get vertigo, so bear with me. If I'm crawling along on my hands and knees and pushing the bike, you're just going to have to wait for me. But fortunately, that didn't happen. But we'd, we'd ridden from Keelar along this road well, about seven hours, I think, we'd ridden that day, and we were going towards Tandy. And there was a huge landslide and we came around the corner and there were a couple of jeeps parked up and the road was just impassable. Um, and we looked every way that we could to see if we could get the bikes through, but it just wasn't safe. So our only option was really to, to turn back and, and go the way that we came. Now, bear in mind, this is the most dangerous road in the world and we'd ridden seven hours and we had another probably seven hours to get back and about four or five hours of daylight left so it was a lot of it was at night which was and this pretty is the most terrifying. dangerous road in the world that you're terrified of because of your fear of heights <laughs> yes yeah i oh, know that's good but i mean the the upside to that is and that's the thing about kind of when something goes wrong is that you just have to kind of get on with it and i was riding with people that nobody lets these things when you're traveling the best people are the people that don't let these things get them down so it's a good team of guys that i have with me and we went back to 
tequila um, and looked at our options and our options were riding back to Srinagar and then taking the motorway to Delhi, which would have been just a nightmare, or going up over the Himalayas way higher than we thought, going over this pass called Sack Pass, which was up to four and a half thousand meters, which is over half the height of Everest. So because of the landslide, this took me on a whole different path and a whole different adventure, which was a great yeah, and what what was Sack Pass like? Tell us about the, the story of going over Sack Pass. Uh, well, Sack Pass was um, unknown. It's uh, it's really high, and the guide we had a guide Bilal with us, um, who's a, a high altitude mountain guide, but he'd never been that way, um, so he it was unknown to him as well. We'd spoken to quite a few locals, and they told us that the pass was open and passable because we were right at the end of the season, so we were kind of pushing our luck. Um, but we didn't have, you know, this is in hindsight, we didn't have kind of emergency uh, camping gear. We didn't have survival bags. We weren't planning on on being in a situation where we were high up in the mountains. So we were well prepared in the fact that we had really good gear with us and we had altitude sickness tablets, etc. but we didn't have some of the survival stuff that I would have liked to have had. Um, so in the morning at breakfast, I was very keen to get going because I just kind of wanted to get up, get going and, and not be stuck on this mountain overnight or get stuck halfway up. But um, it was an extraordinary ride. Uh, and the higher we got, we went kind of up above the tree line and we got into the snow line and the, the peaks of the Himalayas. You just It's difficult to explain how big the Himalayas are and what a huge blue sky there is above it. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, and we came across the Sherpas halfway up um, with a guy who kind of clears the path and feeds a few people who are in need of shelter halfway up the, the Himalayas. So that was nice to stop there and have a, a cup of tea in the Sherpa's hut. And then going further up, again, the, the paths that we were on were not dissimilar to the most dangerous road in the world. They were all had fairly big drop-offs on them. So you had to really have your wits about you. Um, one of the downsides to the anti-altitude sickness pills that we're taking were that they were diuretic so you want to have a pee all the time so you're having to stop every half an hour or an hour to have a pee <laughs> which is you know a little bit um, slows you down a bit so yeah. but we made we made good progress and it was a it was an incredible journey yeah and i think you probably had a better experience of that trip actually going that way because it meant that you had a more, a more spontaneous adventure now on this podcast we ask all of our guests to share a pinch me moment so this is a moment when you're traveling where you just look around and think wow i can't believe i'm seeing this so in your trips can you share one of your pinch me moments with us well there's so many pinch me moments because i've had quite a few trips but if i i'll take you back to to sailing um and the very first passage that i did um was sailing from well not the first passage the second passage but the first passage across the pacific was from cabo st lucas in mexico across to nuki Hiva, uh in the marquesa islands in the pacific and it's a, a voyage that which is 3400 miles and took us 33 days um which is just an enormous passage um and you're kind of concentrating when you first start on the navigation and making sure the boat's ready and all the apprehension about where you're going to go. And then you get into a, a, a sense of sort of looking at the world and thinking about everything in great detail because you've got an enormous amount of time on your hands. And then when you're getting towards your destination, you're then thinking about arriving in 
Polynesia for the first time. And I was very, very aware that uh, my navigation back then, they, you know, although we had a, a GPS receiver, it was switched off most of the time. And we were navigating off maps that were from 1860, from you know Captain Cook's time. And there were no electronic maps. They literally were bits of paper that I had photocopied um, from somebody else. And I was acutely aware that I had to find Nuki Hiva because it was 3,400 miles away from the Pacific, sort of west coast of America, and was in the middle of nowhere. And the morning that we arrived, um, firstly, you can you can smell the island before you hear it, uh, before you see it on, on the horizon, because they're very low-lying islands. They're, you've got about an eight-mile kind of view from the top of your sailboat to the horizon. Um, and these islands are quite low-lying, so you can't see them until you're about 20 miles away. But you can smell them before that. How can, you, the, how can you smell them? What does it just you, the smell of land? <laughs> you can just smell lush green. Your, your sense of smell is really heightened when you're on a sailboat because there's no pollution in the air. You're just breathing fresh air. And when the smell or the scent changes in the air, it's difficult to explain. <laughs> or maybe it was just me looking at the map going, oh, I can see there's an island on the, on the map. <laughs> I can smell it. I don't know. But as we arrived, I kind of, I've always had this um, hammock that I used to, string up on the front of my boat and which is one of the reasons I went sailing in the first place was to sit in a hammock on the front of my boat and I was sailing towards motor sailing towards uh, Nuki Hiva and we were about 25 miles away couldn't quite see it and I was swinging away in my hammock and a school of dolphins came up in front of the boat and swam with us for the last 25 miles of our journey and it was as if they were guiding us into Nuki Hiva uh, and as the, the sort of island came into view, they stayed with us and they stayed with us all the way until we got into Daniel's Bay. And to this day, it just sends goosebumps down the, you know, my spine thinking about it, that these dolphins were in front of my boat swimming along with us. And I was in the middle of the Pacific having sighted land and was about to make landfall in my first Pacific island. So it was a, it was a huge moment for me. Um, and one that I'll never forget. Yeah, and often pinch me moments are kind of those moments where you look around and realise what you've achieved and how far you've come. And I guess that's one of those moments where you were like, I'm here, like I've, I've made it. Well, I kind of, I, I was pleased that I've made it, but we were, when you, unless you actually look at a, a big map of the Pacific to see how big it is, you think you've made it, but you're actually not even a third of the way into the trip. So it was a it was a pinch me moment in the fact that I've kind of navigated from A to B and I've arrived where I thought I was going to arrive when I thought I was going to arrive there, which was just was was huge. But then when we came to anchor in Daniel's Bay, um, we anchored and I was at the front of the boat and Julian was steering and we were shouting backwards and forwards at each other, drop the anchor, reverse back on the on the anchor and 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 i like to when i get somewhere i like to kind of swim over and say hello to some other people uh, or in other boats and i swam over to the boat next to me which is a boat called avon migrant and um this guy said to me he said oh to look at you two you anyone will think it's the first time you've ever anchored your boat and i and i thought to myself do you know this is the first time we've ever anchored our boat because all the time that we were in mexico we were on a mooring boy and it had never occurred to me that we'd sailed you know halfway not halfway around the world but you know a good distance around the world um across the pacific and we'd never anchored before so everything was a learning curve everything was new and it was just it was a, an amazing time in my life where i just felt you know totally alive wow that just sounds incredible 
Um, I want to ask a story about a surreal moment in your trip. So, I mean, I guess that's one, but have you got um, another experience from any of your travels where something just felt very surreal and you were like, I can't believe that I'm like here right now? Uh, surreal moments, that's kind of a difficult one. But yeah, I think um, it's, it's just how things, kind of everything works out, whatever happens. We were riding back to Delhi from uh, the, the bottom of the, the Himalayas and we were going on a, a motorway journey, which one is terrifying in New Delhi on its own because you've got all these traffic coming from every direction and oxes and carts and pedestrians on a motorway. It's quite surreal in itself. Uh, but we were doing about 50, 60 kilometers an hour and Simon was riding in front of me and we were on Royal Enfield Himalayan motorbikes with quite a lot of gear on. And he had a blowout in his back tire and I saw his bike swishing around the road like a snake. And I was, you know, hoping, praying that he just kind of eased off on everything and, and didn't come off. And fortunately, he's a very experienced rider. So literally did that, eased off, didn't brake, brought the bike to a standstill. Uh, and we, we stopped and we were outside a garage and we pushed the bikes in. Um, not only were we outside a garage, but the guys in the garage said, oh, just go and see the guy at the back. Go and see the guy at the back there. We went up the back and there was a truck stop, um, which was a tyre repair shop. Um, That's so crazy. We'd broken down literally outside a tyre repair shop. So the guy repaired the puncture, fixed the tyre, repaired the puncture from the puncture that we'd had the day before. I think he charged us a few rupees. It was it was equivalent to about £1.50. It was ridiculously cheap. But we were back on the road within half an hour and it was surreal that we'd kind of had this potential near miss had a huge blowout and it was fixed and we were back on the road within half an hour although we were riding very tentatively after that because the fear of that happening again was quite real yeah that's just completely surreal so his tire literally blew and then he just skidded into a tire repair shop that's amazing yeah, no, it's just but i think that's just kind of how things work sometimes so I want to ask you about funny stories. So you worked on cruise ships for seven years as a photographer. Have you got any funny stories from those times? Uh, funny stories that I can tell you on the podcast? Whoa, I don't know about that. Um, there's a, <laughs> there are so many funny stories from cruise ships. That was, uh, again, quite a, an amazing time in my life. I was very young and having a great time. Uh, one of the stories I will tell you, is, uh, we used to, um, before I sailed the Pacific, we used to, charter a guy's boat every week a guy called kevin um and basically simon my friend and i would charter his boat and we'd take as many people that we could get and charge them 20 bucks each um so that we got a free ride in a sailboat and one week we were sailing and there were a couple of nurses there was a few singles world people uh and linda vasquez who was the crew purser on board the boat so we knew everyone quite well we we're having a really nice time and one of the things that we like to do was skinny dip off the back of the boat so we threw lines off the back of the boat we'd all get in the water and hang off the lines and kind of drag through the water and it was great fun um about five minutes after doing this linda started kind of panicking and screaming a bit that she'd been stung and we got her back onto the to the boat to find that she'd been stung by a man of war stingray um so th this does actually have a funny ending believe me <laughs> man of um, jellyfish or stingray 
Well, no, it was, a, it was a man of war, uh, man of war uh, jellyfish. But she was really <laughs> badly stung, so she had kind of things all over her. Um, fortunately for her, Kevin had a very good first aid kit on board, and there was also a, a nurse on board. And we were back in touch with the ship fairly quickly to say that we got a medical emergency. He had some adrenaline, gave her an adrenaline shot. Uh, the nurse was taking care of her. And in fact, it was the first time that I'd ever steered a boat. And I, my job was to steer the boat five miles back to the to the cruise ship. Um, and when we got back to the ship, it's quite a big deal having a medical emergency because we pulled alongside the ship on our sailboat and they, they winched her off on a stretcher uh, up through the side of the ship. So there's lots of passengers watching and all the crew are kind of there and that's looking at what's going on. And Linda was taken straight to the uh, crew hospital. Now, Linda is the crew person, so everybody knows this lady. She literally signs all the crew in. She signs them out, does all their immigration, takes care of everybody, really. So she's a very well-known character on board the boat. She got moved up into the hospital, and Vicky, who was the hospital nurse, was taking care of her. And um, there is a, a hospital steward called Mr. Kang, and he also was helping her out during the day. So that evening, um, during the night, there was another medical emergency on board the boat. And unfortunately, a passenger had had a heart attack. Um, so they moved him to the hospital and he was severely ill um, and unfortunately passed away. Um, so they moved Linda from the hospital back to her uh, cabin because uh, she was fine and, and didn't really need observation. And they'd been taking care of this guy. Um, in the morning, as they were moving the body out of the hospital, Mr. Kang came in, um, who is the hospital steward, and was saying, Miss Linda, Miss Linda, where is she, uh, Miss Vicky? And she said, Mr. Kang, Linda's gone. She's gone. OK. And she just carried on walking out with this body. So Mr. Kang thought that Linda had died. And within about 20 minutes, everybody on the entire ship thought that Linda had died. Whereas, in fact, <laughs> Linda was sat in her cabin with her feet up watching the telly and everything was okay. <laughs> so it was uh, oh my gosh. A, a happy ending for Linda, not quite such a happy ending for the other guy. But uh, Funny story it, of Chinese whispers around a cruise it, ship. It, it was Chinese whispers, yeah. <laughs> what happened when everyone kind of, she just walked out of her cabin and everyone was like, what? Well, well that was quite bizarre when people started seeing Linda walking around, yes, because everyone couldn't quite believe that she'd risen from the dead. But she was fighting <laughs> fit and is, is still fighting fit and doing very well today. <laughs> that is a very good story. Um, have you got any stories of culture shock or anywhere that you particularly experienced culture shock? I think lots of places. Um, Puerto Rico was a culture shock the first time I went there because uh, it was just very kind of Latino and oh, it's just a, a strange place. I, th I think um, India, Vietnam, Mexico, there's everywhere I go is a culture shock because the cultures are all so different. I do really enjoy immersing myself in other cultures um, and seeing how other people live I, it's not so much that it's a shock it's more of a, a culture interest to see how people kind of go about their daily lives in different in different countries so. yeah and your i remember your photos from india looked like driving through which city were you in where it was just like hundreds of people on bikes and you guys were trying to get through on your motorbikes oh well that was that was actually in delhi but the the, the busiest place for motorbikes was Vietnam. Gosh, up in Hanoi, it was extraordinary on on bikes because you're literally 
six or ten abreast. You've been to, to Vietnam, so you know what it's like. But it's uh, you are awash, and and it's chaotic. The traffic. There are no rules, so you just have to have this kind of little force field bubble around you and your bike, and concentrate on what's happening literally in your peripheral vision in your little circle and not worry what's going on in the big picture unlike most motorists you don't have to worry about what's happening 200 yards down the road only what's happening two foot in front of you yeah and talking of difficult places to ride your bike is there anywhere that stands out that has been particularly challenging for you to do motorbiking uh i i think the the first off-road trip i did uh going i went to baja in mexico uh, started off in the west coast of the states and rode down to to Cart, which is um, just close to Tijuana, and we rode down towards um, sort of Baja on that peninsula. And a lot of that riding, it was on a quite a big motorcycle. We were test riding a, a the new Honda Africa Twin, um, and it was one of my first proper off-road trips. Um, and I was really lucky that. Um, I was um, riding with a guy called Andrew Short, who is, he was the ambassador for Honda um, and now rides for Husqvarna and has just come 13th in the uh, Dakar rally. So he's properly good. And he kind of talked me through riding off road. And in the reverse scenario, I talked him through being in, in Mexico because he'd spent probably 20 years being a motocross champion and just been from circuit to circuit but had never traveled abroad before it was his first trip abroad so he was a bit freaked out about being in mexico and i was a bit freaked out about riding off road so we did a a, a ride to the, a beach called punta santa carlos um and we were going to camp there overnight and we didn't leave until about three o'clock down this trail and the, the sun goes down pretty quickly in Mexico, sort of five o'clock on the dot. So we had 35 miles to do in two hours. So I had to average 15 miles an hour, which doesn't sound very fast, um, but it was very technical riding. So you're having to ride quite slowly and there's a lot of sand, there's a lot of rock and there's a lot of elevation as well. So as we were going through, we, we were on headsets and Andrew was kind of teaching me the best line to take around the corners and how to stay out of all the rubble and and get high in the turns and and take the bike round and how to kind of stand up bend my legs and bend my arms and use my body as a shock absorber so so i think technically um that was it, it was technically difficult but also it was a great achievement i felt doing it i also got to know andrew really well uh, which otherwise i wouldn't have done because um you know you just yeah, exactly. It's, it's the learning of other people while traveling and especially yeah. with the kind of trips that you do, very kind of adventure, adventure travel, you're really learning different skills of different people. Now, we've probably got time for one more story before we end. So I want to ask you about a time that's changed your perspective. Well, I, I, I think traveling in general has changed my perspective. I, I left Britain when I was 21, fairly naive uh, about the world. And um, what I, I, I think joining cruise ships probably were my, was my first um, defining moment in my life in that I realized that at 21 that anything was possible. You could achieve anything you want in life. You've just got to say yes and just be prepared to do it. And and there's a whole world out there. So from cruise ships to sailing to motorcycling to kind of traveling with you guys when you were younger 
um, and, and how it shaped my entire life uh, in a positive way um, that I've been able to achieve great things. And all of that is because of traveling. Yeah, that's really the, the joy of traveling. And that's why it makes such an impact on people's lives. So that's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, it's been lovely to chat to you and hear some of your stories. Well, it's been lovely telling my stories. I hope you enjoyed the last episode of series one of the podcast. It's been an incredible series and I feel so lucky to have had the chance to chat to so many inspiring adventurers. I'm also very grateful to you lovely people who've listened to the podcast, supported us and become part of this podcasting journey. Series two will be coming very soon with even more epic travellers sharing their stories. If you want to follow my dad's adventures, you can find him on Instagram at swaggrandad. And I'll link the short documentary he made of his trip to India with Upshift Online in the show notes. Stay updated to when Series 2 is coming out by following us on Instagram at Storytime for Travellers. If you've been following, you'll know that I've now moved from London to Sydney, Australia, which is very exciting. So if you're based in Sydney and have a story to tell or you know someone who does, get in touch. I would love to hear from you. I also need people to show me around and give me Sydney tips. I can't wait to chat to you again in Series 2 of Storytime for Travellers coming soon.